All righty. Well, good to see everybody this morning. Um, let's see, very quickly, I just want to take about two minutes to kind of build up kind of the big context of what we're doing, kind of a little bit of background. There's a couple of new fa faces. And so I'd like to just kind of start, um, start with kind of what the whole class is about and then narrow into specifically what we're looking at in this particular class. Of course, this is a systematic theology class. Um, we've been going since, I think, June, if I remember correctly. Uh, we started with, uh, you know, the doctrines of the Bible, uh, you know, studying the Bible, things like clarity and um, I almost said perspicuity, but I hate that word, and it also means clarity. Uh, but necessity, uh, clarity, um, authority, and sufficiency of, of Scripture. Then we moved into uh, talking about the doctrines of God. Um, it, it's uh, God as being triune and uh, his attributes and things of that nature. And so then we moved into uh, Christology and then... Um, you know, so we've gone through a handful of topics. So systematic theology is the kind of topical organization of, of theology. And so within, um, in studying systematic theology, we use other forms of theology in order to, to help us out. Um, obviously, our, our primary source of information, the one authoritative source of information for systematic theology is scripture itself, the um, 69 books of the, of the Bible. Um, but we also, what we do is we use something called biblical theology. And what biblical theology um, says, or what it does, is it takes a, a topic, um, like say, for example, the Messiah, and um, starts with the beginning of Revelation. Um, when I say uh, Revelation, I don't mean the book of Revelation. I mean Revelation as a whole, uh, divine Revelation. Uh, it begins, in, in, it begins with... Uh, Essentially, a uh, the seed or the the initial um, disclosure of of the Messiah, which we find in Genesis three fifteen, and then and then biblical theology follows that theme or that motif or whatever you want to call it um, throughout Scripture, and it um, as it develops throughout time through the the biblical period um, from Genesis all the way through through Revelation, and so. Uh, biblical theology tells us, explains to us, uh, teaches us how God has, over time, uh, revealed um, himself and what he would have from his people and his, his divine plan. Uh, then historical theology also goes kind of chronologically. It goes through time as well, um, but it's um, after um, all of Scripture was disclosed, and so um, uh, what I mean by that is historical theology goes back through church history. It's tightly woven with church history. And it talks about, in historical theology, we talk about what people believed through periods of time. So one of the, the kind of the big one that we spent time on was Christology. That is, who is Christ and the doctrines of Christ. And we began with, uh, of course, Scripture, but then as Heresy crept into the um, crept into uh, crept into the church. Uh, you know, Orthodox Christianity had to respond to that, and so over time, these doctrines became more and more refined. Till we we ended up um, in basically was it you know fourth fifth century fourth fourth century. We ended up with the articulation of who Christ is that we have today, and it's essentially been. Um, unchanged you know, since then. There's been a handful of tweaks because um, there's been some minor heresies that have popped up, but by and large, heresies tend to repeat themselves, right? The heresies that we see today are the same heresies that they had 2,000 years ago, okay? And so um, today, what we're doing is, in a sense, we're engaging in a little bit of historical theology, and the context is actually set back in the early 17th century, so it's early 1600s. And um, I, I tell you what, I would go in a little bit deeper, but we're actually I'm going to ask you guys some questions about um, the particulars of, of what we're doing here. Um, and so uh, we're studying uh, this document called the Canons of Dort, 
and we're getting ready to talk about specifically what that is in the context of theology, all right? So let's pray, and then um, I'll let y'all answer some questions about what it is that we're studying. Father, thank you so much um, for this morning, the opportunity to come together and to, um, to study um, your plan, really. We study who you are, study your plan. Father, we ask that um, this is a, can be a hard teaching today. I ask that you um, be with us um, uh, to have patience with one another and to um, have grace with one another, uh, but at the same time, your spirit uh, open our minds to have it, have us understand and learn what it is that you will have us to understand and learn. Uh, please uh, diminish uh, me or my words or my thoughts and increase uh, your spirit, Father. We love you. We trust you. Help us to glorify you in everything that we think and say and do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So to begin with, the Canons of Dort, like I've said, it's a document. What kind of document is it? Starts with a C. Go ahead. It's a canon. <laughs> yes, ma'am. It's a confession. Okay. Um, very, very close. Um, a, a confession is, uh, is a statement of faith that normally goes through um, kind of in detail uh, or some reasonable level of detail what it is that the, the writer or writers of the, the document um, believe, um, which is different from a what? what? What's the other one? Creed, which is different from a creed in that a creed is a simpler statement. Uh, you think of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Those tend to be one paragraph or three paragraphs. You know, pretty much that's it. When you look at um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's, I think, over like 12,000 words. It's like 33 chapters. And that's a full confession, right? Um, so creeds and confessions are a little bit different. And then they mention catechisms, which is taking a confession and putting it into something more or less question and answer format to, um, in order to uh, teach people uh, what it is that the, the confession says. So this is the Canons of Dort are, is a... It's funny, I, I struggle with whether or not to use the plural or the singular. I go back and forth because canons of Dort is one thing, it's a document, but also there's canons as plural, so pardon me if I stumble on my, my own words. Um, so anyway, let's see, where were we? Um, so it is a confession, um, and we, I don't have this as a question, but what, uh, so what's a canon? What did we say a canon was last week? Anybody remember? It's a rule or standard by which uh, you compare something. Okay, good. So these would be the rules or uh, standards of, uh, of Dort. So where, when, and by whom was it created? Okay, it was written by an, an international synod of Reformed church leaders in uh, Dortrecht, uh, Netherlands. I don't even want to really try to um, pronounce that. Um, from about 1618, from late 1618 to mid mid 1619, and what was the occasion? You guys remember? Yes, ma'am. Awesome. So there was a guy named Jacob Arminius who um, taught, who was deviating from the Reformed faith, and his followers wrote a document called the Remonstrance. Exactly. And this is a response to, to that. So it's a response to um, Arminianism. Um, and it's to resolve a theological controversy. And it's specifically concerning um, the way that um, believers receive the, the benefits of Christ. So does it articulate the totality of the Reformed faith? No, no it doesn't. Not even close. Um, so when people refer to it as the five points of Calvinism, it kind of drives me crazy because there are no five points. You know, it's almost like, what are the five points of Christianity? Well, you know, where do you want to begin? You know, I mean, clearly, Christ, you know, Jesus as Lord is, is going to be in there. But, I mean, how do you articulate five? Let's see. 
And then compare and contrast uh, the cans to Tulip. Now we'll, we'll skip that for now. All right. So sections of the canon. Um, divine election starts with divine election and moves to Christ's death. So what you have is the work of the Father. Then you have the work of the Son. And then the next uh, two se sections, which, which I'm sorry, which correspond to the last three sections of the Arminian document, um, cover the, the Holy Spirit. Um, the first being human corruption, conversion to God, um, and the way it occurs. And then the last one is our eternal security and perseverance of the, of the saints. So those are the, the four basic points of, of the document. Within the, the, the document itself, within the canons themselves, um, how is each one organized? You remember we talked about that last week? Yes, sir. It goes through the doctrine and then responds to errors related to the doctrine. Okay, good. Yeah. It uh, goes through a doctrine and then responds to errors. Um, but more, a little more granular than that, a little more detail, is it begins with a universal statement. <clears throat> and the universal statement is something that anybody um, that would call themselves a Christian, would, would agree on, okay? Um, be, they, be they Catholic, uh, you know, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever, they should, should be able to agree on, on this. Even if um, we don't, they're not necessarily um, what we would refer to as Orthodox Christians. It's the, the broader Christendom should be able to agree on the universal statement. Then there's a progressive case for Reformed doctrine. So it starts with a common ground, and then it begins to build a case, um, moving toward the Reformed doctrine, okay? And each of the sections follows this. Um, in the case of the first section, which we're going to study today, um, of course, the universal statement's the first statement, <clears throat> like it is in all of them, but then two through six are the progressive case. And then there is the actual statement of the Reformed doctrine, and that's in Article 7. And then um, implications and applications are the last, what is that, 11? Um, the last 11 articles of the main part. And then, and then we, ref, uh, we turn to rejection of errors, where it goes in and picks apart pieces of the, the Arminian doctrine. All right, so let's get started. Section 1. And by the way, today we're only going to go through the the first seven sections, at least we're going to try to. And then next week we'll wrap up section one and then we'll, we'll move on, okay? All right. Article one, God's right to condemn all people. Oh, I'm sorry. Got ahead of myself. These are, the, these are the seven articles that we're going to try to go through today. And as you can see, there's kind of a logical progression from article one, which is this God's right to condemn all people, which everybody should agree on, um, if you even think about calling yourself a Christian, all the way through Article 7, which is the, the doctrine of, of election. All right, here we go. Article 1, God's right to condemn all people. <clears throat> Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin, and under the curse, and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the apostle says in Romans 3.19, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God. And then in Romans 3.23, he says, all have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23, he says, the wages of sin is death. So what this is saying here, obviously, is that <coughs> God doesn't owe salvation to anybody. Doesn't owe it to anybody. And that's something that we're going to see very starkly here in a few minutes is, is rejected by a lot of people, especially today. But it's always kind of been a, um, it, it, it's been a, a, a problem um, in the past. All right. So what I want to do is take those first two um, passages, 319 and 323, let's put them together and look at kind of the whole context of, of, um, of Romans 3. Now, what, what Paul is doing here in the first part of Romans 
is he's going in and he's essentially making a very similar case, or essentially the same exact case, that the first article of um, the first section of the Canons of Dort are making. And that is that we are all guilty before God. And then in, in Paul's world, the distinction was between two groups. Who were they? Jew and Gentile, exactly, right? Um, so with that context, he says, now we know uh, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's the Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul, you know, eloquently, <laughs> Scripture, of course, the Holy Spirit, uh, essentially makes the same case as the, the earlier one. And then a, another passage I want to bring, bring out or highlight is, um, actually, it's uh, Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 13. And so what's happening here is, you know, uses a little bit of logic, but it's essentially the same, the same idea. Um, so there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all their other Gal Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is grouping the entirety of mankind, everybody, you and me and everybody and Aunt Louise and everybody else, and he's grouping us all together in that we, like Paul said in the previous slide, we all fall short of the glory of God. And unless we repent and believe in Christ, then we will perish. All right. Any questions so far? I think that's a pretty basic teaching, right? All right, so article, article two is the manifestation of God's love. This is, I don't know, where we, maybe we have fun. <laughs> this is good stuff here. So, well, the other stuff's good stuff too, I guess. But, but this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, of course, that's a paraphrase of, of John 3.16. So, question, is the good news, without the bad news, good news? No. no. These are the way I want to extend that a little bit. It's not necessary. What does that mean? If, if I don't believe the bad news, then why do I need the good news? Exactly. Or if you don't know about the bad news... If you don't admit the bad news, then why do you need the good news? So the question is, why did Jesus die? You know, there are people who will talk, talk about having faith in Christ, having faith in Jesus, but at the same time, they're universalists. And what that means is they don't believe that anybody's going to hell. They don't believe that anybody's going to perish. Now, I get it. I don't want anybody to perish either. But the problem is, sticking our head in the sand so that we don't admit it, that there are people who are going to perish, perish eternally, then, you know, it, it doesn't do us any good. As a matter of fact, it's, it's detrimental because, and it's, it, well, one, it robs gods of his, his glory, but also the person that we're talking to, the person that's sitting in front of us who believes that nobody is going to perish, um, you know, if they don't hear the good news of Christ, if, 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 if Ron, for example, believes that, and then I don't give him, you know, Jesus and, and let him know that people are going to uh, perish, I'm no different than, say, a doctor who's sitting in front of a patient with cancer who refuses to tell the person um, that they have cancer. 
He's refusing to give them the diagnosis because he doesn't want them to feel bad, right? Except in that situation, um, the person who refuses to give the gospel is worse because the, per- the doctor, at least, is just physical death, right? But the person who does not share the gospel does not set that person, um, does not set that person right. Th- that's an eternal death. That's eternal destruction. Does it make sense? Okay. So it, it may seem nice, you know, and I say this, it, it, in a sense, it breaks my heart to say this because I have a lot of, I have some family members and I have some friends that, you know, pay these um, empty words to Christ, but they don't really know what it means. And it's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely heartbreaking. So one of the problems that we have is we have this idea that for some reason um, there's something wrong with, with God's wrath, right? For, you know, that God would not uh, have wrath on people, that he not, would not be um, angry with people, that he would not, um, you know, condemn people to, to hell, okay? And that you know, his love in, you know, the New Testament, his love uh, won over on, you know, his wrath. And so the idea there is that love defeats wrath. Um, but that is not biblical. That's heresy. Because if we believe that God's love defeated God's wrath, then what we're saying is there's something wrong with God's wrath, be it weak or immoral or whatever the case may be. And so what we have to understand is that at the cross, God's love did not defeat God's wrath. It, it, at the cross, God's love satisfied God's wrath. There is a massive distinction between those two things. Okay, And the, that second one is Orthodox Christianity. The first one is heresy because, it, again, it doesn't understand who, who God is. Um, and then Article 2, going back to the, the canon, Article 2 only makes sense in the context of Article 1. And it's basically the same thing like that Stuart just said a few minutes ago. Um, the good news doesn't make sense without the bad news. All right. So now Tom's going to play a video for us. Does anybody here know who Rob Bell is? Yeah, handful of people. Yeah. Yeah, he is, um, I don't know, a heretic to, to say the least. So... Um, so no, I don't condone what he's about to say. So go ahead. Several years ago, we had art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of adult Christian that have quotes from the Bible, and lots of people found them to be Okay, now let's not comment on the lack of gentleness um, or the lack the lack of tact, I guess you could say, um, in writing a handwritten note and putting it on something like that. I, I think that's distasteful. However, that aside, what what it said was was correct. Okay, um, and so that this is kind of kind of where we're going, um, and. Go, go ahead. So do you know that for sure? Do you know that for Assuming that Gandhi did not have a deathbed profession of faith in Jesus Christ, assuming that, then do we know? Yes, absolutely we know, right? Now question, um, he, he doesn't like the fact that... Um, Somebody took the time to share that with somebody. Is there any value in that? Yes. Who just said that? Oh, and and that would be? Yeah. 
Right. Absolutely well said. If, um, if we highlight the fact that somebody who does these great humanitarian deeds, um, like a Gandhi, um, even a person like that, uh, who does not have faith in Christ, um, is in hell, then what does that say about, about me? You know, again, without Christ. And so the idea here is what he's getting at is you can work your way into heaven. That's got nothing to do with Christianity. Yes, sir. Sure. So why, why do we know that Gandhi is in, uh, in hell and, and, and not in heaven? So the idea there would be that, um, first of all, assuming, like I said a little while ago, assuming that there was no deathbed confession, from Gandhi, which we don't have any reason to believe that there was. Um, you know, you can just look at John 3, 16, 16 and 17. It says, you know, God so loved the world that gave his one, only, one and only son that whoever uh, believes in him uh, shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay? Great. Now what's the next verse say? Okay? It says uh, Jesus did not come to condemn, right? But what he does say, it, what it does say is that uh, those who do not believe are condemned already. Okay? So if you don't believe in Christ, you're condemned already. So if you didn't believe in Christ, then he's condemned. So, good? Okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, will we'll only a few select few, we call them elect, not select, but elect few. Yeah, uh, and I don't say that with a smile on my face. I mean, I'm happy that some are going, um, but, uh, you know, and, and it, it's, again, heart-wrenching that, that, um, that billions upon billions um, will go to hell, but that's called reality. It's what the Bible says. Okay, go ahead. Is that the dumbest question you've ever heard in your life? Yeah, yeah. How do you become one of these few? And he said right off the bat, is it something that you believe? You know, you just want to go, duh. You know, oh, and by the way, this guy, if you don't know who he is, I'm sorry, I forgot to um, explain it. He was a quote-unquote pastor of a megachurch up in Michigan. Um, in 2012, he retired, became pastor emeritus, um, and then really kind of ramped up his book deals. And this is basically advertising a book called Love Wins, which I, I was trying to find exactly how many copies it sold. I don't know exactly how many copies it sold. I will tell you it sold a lot. I'm pretty sure it was a bestseller. So, so anyway, um, go ahead. Okay, so what kind of God? Well, okay, from his wrath, okay. Tell me about that. These are, yeah, right. 
Right, absolutely. So it's almost like, yeah, some people teach there's an Old Testament God and there's a, a New Testament God, and the Old Testament God was vindictive and, and wrathful and mean and all of that. And the New Testament God is Jesus, and so he's, he's uh, happy and joyful and love and, and that sort of thing. Yes, sir? Would it be better to, instead of wrath, say justice? Well, there, there's two different things. Ju- justice is... Um, without having a formal definition of it, the idea there is that uh, justice is like, uh, I almost want to say serving justice. So that, that it's, uh, the punishment fits the crime. It's you, you get what you deserve, kind of that sort of thing. So there's justice there. But also there, the Bible is very clear on God's wrath as well, that his wrath, his anger rests on people, but it's a godly anger. See, but one of the reasons... <coughs> One of the reasons why we have trouble with God being angry or God being wrathful is because what we do is we take our own um, anger and wrath and we project it onto him. See, ours is sinful. It's selfish. It is vindictive. It's manipulative and kind of that sort of thing. His is not. His is holy and just. And, um, and so the idea there is, is that we have to, to understand that, yes, he is, he is wrath, he is just, he is all of these things, but he's, he's loving, he's merciful, and he's graceful. He's, 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 he is all of the above. And, and it's, I, I, I always want to say we have to hold these things in balance, and there's a sense where that is true. Um, however, he is um, not like part wrath and part love. He is completely wrath and completely love. He is completely just. He is completely grace. You know, and so, um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Okay, cool. Um, and so then the idea there is, is choice of words rescuing from, from, from God uh, is probably a non-biblical choice of words, um, but we're, we're being redeemed, we're being saved, and we're being saved from what? What's that? What, right, exactly, but it's, uh, the the punishment that is being doled out would be doled out by God, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Right. 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 Yeah, and so so we we um, we. We make make choices, right? And and use the term um, wrong decision, and that's true. Um, but it's actually uh, I'll, I'll be a little rougher than that. It's it's rebellion, right? We rebelled against him, and it started in the garden, and occurs every day and probably every minute since we've been in this class. Okay, um, and so you know, and we're all guilty of it because if at at the root you go back to the sin in the garden, the sin in the garden was um, that Adam and Eve wanted to determine what was right and wrong. It wasn't that they just wanted knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to actually establish good and evil. And this is exactly what Rob Bell is doing. Rob Bell is trying to establish, he is, he is essentially, I don't want to blow my questions later on, but he's, 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 he's essentially putting God on trial. And he's saying, you know, God would not, would not do that, even though the Bible says specifically that God does that. Because what he's saying is that um, God would not displease me. God is going to measure up to my standards, and he's going to conform to my standards. And we all got to be careful of that. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Okay. So he, he keeps doing this, right? Um, how could it be good? Well, he is goodness. He is good. How could he ever be trusted? Well, he's unchangeable. God does not lie. Now, how could that ever be good news? Well, the wrath is not the good news. The good news is that Christ is saving us from that, and that is reality, right? Go ahead. Now, he is right in one sense. This is why people 
do not want to have anything to do with the Christian faith. But it's not the absurdities. He's speaking the absurdities, right? And I'm not trying to do a tit-for-tat thing. I'm just saying, I mean, think about everything that he's saying is absurd. The reason people don't want to have anything to do with Christianity is because what? The sin of the garden. Absolutely. So I love how you can you can flip it back over. Um, so. I feel like I need an airsick bag or something, sorry. Um, and so, so he made a handful of statements that are correct, but kind of in spite of himself. And what he said was, um, what you find in the Bible is unexpected and amazing and whatever words he used, he's right. But it's the exact opposite of, of what he's saying, okay? Um, you know, there is, I mean, Christianity, when you, when you understand it, it is reality. I mean, it describes reality. And what he's describing is his own little fairy tale that he's trying to get other people um, uh, people to believe. There was a, the father of uh, the father of Bill Mounts, who wrote like everybody's favorite Greek text. Um, his name is Robert Mounts. He was a pastor up in kind of the Northwest. Um, and what I heard him speaking one time, and he said that his worst nightmare is that as a pastor, that um, when Judgment Day comes, he has to stand beside the people um, in his congregation and account for, you know, if they were unsaved, and account for kind of their sins, right? Um, or, and just allow the, the person, where God would allow the person standing next to them to turn to them and say, why didn't you ever tell me? of that sort of thing. I can't even imagine if something like that was would actually happen. I can't even imagine what Rob Bell's um, afterlife would be like. I mean, he had he had the ear of literally millions and g- preached a a fairy tale, you know, if preach can even be the word. And he comes out in the end and he says, "Love wins." Well. Yeah, love wins, but love didn't win out over justice, like we said a little while ago. At the cross, God's love satisfied God's wrath and God's justice. It did not, um, it did not defeat God's wrath or God's justice, and that's an important thing to understand. The other thing is, is when he talks about love, he's not talking about divine love. He's talking about sentimentality, sentiments, feelings, emotions, right? And like we talked about last year, um, love, there is a, an emotional component of love, but love is primarily an action. Um, and God's love is manifested in the fact that he gave his one and only son to die on a cross, that he did, you know, and die a, a brutal death that he did not deserve. That's love, right? Um, Rob Bell's idea of love is sentimentality. I can't pronounce that word. I don't know why. Sorry. All right. So, so far, so good. Any comments, questions, anything like that? No? Okay, bear with me one second. I talked a lot more than I thought I would. All right. So, moving on to Article 3. So the idea, before we get to that, the idea there um, was trying to show with showing this video is that, you know, Article 1 says that... um, you know, essentially, uh, God has the right to condemn everybody. And then Article 2 is the good news, of, essentially the good news of the, of the gospel. And so when you see something like Rob Bell, he's, he's actually denying um, the first article, which um, a lot of people actually do these days, and then um, which makes, it makes the second article um, absurd. Because you don't, you don't need Christ if uh, there is no condemnation. All right. 
Article 3. In order that people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends messengers of this very joyful message to the people and at the, to the people and at the time he wills. By this ministry people are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. For how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they have been sent? Romans 10. All right, so here's Romans 10, a little more in context. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the, the word of Christ. So kind of the key reason I wanted to put the bigger context up there is essentially that last verse. Um, you know, faith comes through hearing. And, you know, actually I was getting ready to answer one of the questions I'm getting ready to ask you. So first, which call is this referring to? You remember we talked about the two different calls? Okay. Is this the gospel call or the effectual call? And what's the difference? The gospel is the universal call. Okay. Good. The effectual call is that that is empowered by God Good. The gospel call goes out to everyone, and who, who, uh, who's the agent of that? We are, right? Evangelists, right? We, um, we spread out the... That is not good. <laughs> the batteries are uh, all over the place. That's awesome. Uh, my back got... Oh, thank you. You are the man. Um. Yeah, and then the effectual call is the Holy Spirit working in a person's life. And we can also basically refer to it as regeneration. Um, Tom, you ready? Yep, tab, or space, rather. Can you hit space? There we go. So is this, uh, so this anti-evangelistic in any way? And why do I ask that? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Exactly. And so people who don't believe or don't really understand um, the doctrines that are being taught here um, tend to say that, you know, or ask the question, well, if God has elected people, then why do I need to go out and share the gospel? Because those who are elect um, are, are going to be saved anyway. Right, and so what it is is it's a it's it's a deficient understanding of what it is that's actually being taught here is actually which is actually what's being taught in in scripture. So to kind of extend that a little bit, what does the phrase "God uses means" mean, and how does it apply? I just felt like Bill Clinton, right? <laughs> it's like depends on what the definition of the word "is" is, you know. Okay, what does the phrase "God uses means"? means mean and how how does it how does it apply here so what does what does uh god uses means what excellent excellent it means that um he he works out his purpose uh, the fruition of his plan um through uh through through people and through events and things of that nature so if you think about it, with each and every one of us, essentially God could have just, I, don't, I hope the matrix doesn't come to mind. So if it does, just get the matrix out of your head, right? Yeah, you know, shoving that thing in the back of uh, Neo's, Neo's head. And what, what did he say? Ooh, wow, I know Kung Fu, right? And so God could do something very similar where essentially he just gives us the information, the faith, the belief and everything. And you could just say, Whoa, you know, just like Keanu, whoa, I'm a Christian now, okay? I believe and I understand Christ. He could do something like that, but you know what? He doesn't do that. That's, that's 
just not the way he operates. He uses us to share his gospel. And like he said, faith comes through hearing. Okay? So nobody liked my analogy. Go ahead. He considered that a privilege. Right. That he's given us this opportunity. Absolutely. To be used by him. Absolutely. It's not a burden, it's a privilege. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, Stuart makes a great point. We shouldn't think of evangelism as a burden. We need to understand it as a, it's a privilege. It's an honor to share the gospel. It's, it's an honor to, um, you know, be an instrument in his hands and, and to, to, you know, be an instrument that, that is used in order to bring somebody to faith, right? All right, good point. So then it mentions uh, repentance and faith. So how are repentance and faith related? Anybody? What does repentance mean? Okay, it's a turning. It's a turning away, right? And so the way I think about it is faith and repentance are kind of two, two sides of the same coin, okay? Where repentance is we're turning from sin to Christ, right? And then in faith, we're turning, well, I'm sorry, in repentance, we're turning from sin, and then in faith, we're turning to Christ, okay? If you think about, um, say, an airplane that's flying from Houston to San Antonio, from the Houston perspective, it's a departure, and then from the San Antonio perspective, it's an arrival, okay? It's the same, same flight, but two different contexts. So repentance and faith are almost like um, from the context of sin or from the context of Christ, we're turning away from one and to the other, two sides of the same coin. So God's wrath remains on, oh, Article 4, twofold response to the gospel. God's wrath remains on those who do, who, who do not believe this gospel, but those who do accept it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through him from God's wrath and from the destruction and receive the gift of eternal life. So <clears throat> we already talked about it a little while ago. What are we delivered from? His wrath, exactly. So is there anything wrong with saying that? Well, Rob Bell would say yes, but um, God is, is good. God is wrath, and so absolutely not. Um, and it's not for us to determine um, what's good um, what's right or wrong or good or bad or whatever, that's, that's Christ. So question, we, you know, you, if you look up um, that top one, it says God's wrath, and then, um, but those who do not accept it embrace Jesus as Savior. Does the Son save us from the, in, I'll, I'll um, tune this a little bit uh, from Mallory's comment a little while ago, which is actually a, a good observation. Um, does the Son save us from the Father's wrath? Good. Wrath is not exclusive to one person of the Trinity. So, is it right to say the Son is saving us from the triune God's wrath? In a sense, but the plan of salvation is it just Christ? Or is it the Father and the Holy Spirit working in it as well? Okay, well, he is the only, he's the redeemer, right? So he is the agent in salvation. I guess what I'm getting at, let me, let me just make the statement positively. The triune God saves us from the wrath of the triune God, okay? So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saves us from the, the wrath of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reason I make, I, I say that, and I, I really want, um, I think it's an important point, is because there are a lot of people who believe that Jesus saves us from the Father. That somehow the Father is the Old Testament God who's wrathful and Jesus is, you know, the, um, the new God um, and, you know, Jesus is loving and all of that and he saves us from the, the Father. And I've heard analogies like, you know, Jesus is a shield, um, the Father breathing fire and Jesus is like a shield with, with us behind him. And that is absolutely not the case, okay? It's... Um, the triune God 
it saved us from the wrath of the triune God. Does the Father love us because Jesus died for us, or did Jesus die for us because the Father loves us? Good. Um, it would be the second one. Uh, Jesus died for us because the Father loves us. While we were sinners, um, he loved us. And then the, the remains. Uh, yeah, God's wrath remains on those who do not believe. What does remains imply? What's that? It was there before, right? Um, Right, exactly. Even if they don't hear the gospel, um, they still are. Exactly. Good. Article 5. The sources of unbelief and faith. The cause or blame for this unbelief, as well as for all other sins, is not at all in God, but in humanity. Faith in Jesus Christ, however, and salvation through him is a free gift of God. As Scripture says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Likewise, it has been freely given to you um, to believe in Christ. Um, let's go ahead and get to the questions. So, um, so with this in mind, so let me back up first. So the cause or, or blame for the unbelief um, is, this is one of the, the difficult things to understand. It's kind of one of the, the mysteries, Right? You have God's sovereignty, but at the same time, God is not uh, responsible for our unbelief. He's not responsible for our sin. Human beings are responsible, but God is sovereign. And those are two things that we can't quite, quite reconcile, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, so, that's, in, that's go ahead. What's that? Our capability mm -hmm. to... Then yeah, is actually a gift that the capability God gave us to make that right. Yeah, yeah, we're um, we're agents, yeah. and we can um, make decisions and live our lives, and then um, we can run away from Him. We can rebel against Him. So, uh, so how do we respond to um, the statement? Um, but God made me that way, and so you may hear hear this with you know, uh, homosexuals, or you may hear this with, um, I actually heard it a few years ago with a person who um, was just angry and lashed out. And he said, well, that's the way God wired me. Okay. So, um, so how do you respond to that? Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. There was a lot there. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it was really good. Um, lots of stuff. And so um, beginning with inheriting the sin nature, um, and then getting into uh, having people that have certain proclivities, whether it's homosexuality or, or kleptomania, whatever the case may be, kind of wrapping all of that up, what I would say is, you know, when I was studying biblical counseling, one of the principles that we learned is 
you're not accountable for what happens to you. You're accountable for how you respond. And that's something that we have to bear in mind all the time, right? So I know that um, when I, you know, have a headache or, you know, a tummy ache, I'm sorry, stomach ache, um, or whatever the case may be, I can be a bit cantankerous. Um, now, Jan is actually watching online right now. She's probably laughing. But, um, but, you know, so I can be kind of cantankerous. Well, I am still accountable to love my family, to love my neighbor as myself, regardless of how I feel physically, right? And so we may be, I, I've heard, um, I've heard uh, folks say that, you know, be, be careful when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, um, because, you know, you can, it opens the door to sin. Well, hungry, lonely, or tired I can see that, but you know what? Anger is already a sin, okay? Um, when you're angry, you're either getting something that you don't want, like a headache, or you're not getting something that you do want, like, I don't know, a piece of chocolate cake or something. <laughs> but, you know, the idea there is that, um, I guess going back and getting back to Dort, actually, is the idea is that, you know, with the folks that say God made me that way, you may have a proclivity, and I, I actually can't, can't put it on God, but um, a proclivity for you know, homosexuality or gluttony or kleptomania or you know, gambling abuse or substance abuse or whatever it, it may be. Um, you're not accountable for those proclivities. You're accountable for how you respond to them, right? And then the second thing, and I think it's... Uh, Another important um, comment to make is one of those is not worse than the others. You know, I, I don't like the phrase sin is sin because there are degrees of sin. But we, you and I, everybody in this room does not have the prerogative to determine which sin is worse than others. We're, we don't have the prerogative to have pet peeves or anything like that. Okay. That is God's prerogative. God can determine what is a higher sin, what's a lower sin, what's a, a mortal sin, or whatever the, the case may be, right? Um, you and I don't have that prerogative, and we're, we're not him, okay? And then, um, so I think it's also, so we have to be careful if we have pet sins, you know? Sam, did you have something? Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Absolutely. And to Sam's point, the gospel changes lives in a nutshell. And that, I think it's well said. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he created us to have communion with him, and it's our sin that has created a chasm between us and him. And, but he's the one that's bridging the chasm, right? Called grace. Yes, sir. Right. Absolutely. Good. Right. Absolutely. And to, to your point, um, a Christian that would say something like this needs to be rebuked and pointed essentially back to the gospel. I agree 100%. Did you have something? Go ahead. No. <laughs> and and that's a fair statement. I I, I knew I knew somebody's going to call me on that. <laughs> um, let me let me give you a better response next week. 
let, let me cook on that for a little bit because that's a, it, that's a nuanced question. I think it's an important question and I wanna make sure that, um, that I parse it correctly, right? Funny, I was saying that, I'm like, yep, yep, they're gonna nail me on that, so. Uh, <laughs> so yes, even faith is a gift, uh, is a gift from God. Um, the faith that we have, because it says, uh, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. And that is not only um, the salvation, that is not only the grace, but the faith itself is a gift from God. The faith, faith in Christ is grace. Um, all right, and then we will get into Article 6 next week. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, I think it's a good conversation. So uh, more of you and less of me is, a, is always a good thing. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for this morning. Um, help us to glorify you as we go through our day, go through our week. Um, we love you. We trust you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.